Welcome back to Glossy Trendwatch Streetwear Edition. I'm your host, Danny Parisi, a fashion reporter here at Glossy. For our fifth and final episode of the series, I'm joined by one of the grandfathers of streetwear, designer Jeff Staple. In this episode, Jeff and I discuss the rising popularity of the collab, what separates a collaboration from a licensing agreement, and why he thinks streetwear is a virus. Episode five of Glossy Trendwatch Streetwear Edition starts right now. All right, I'm here with Jeff Staple. Jeff probably needs no introduction, but uh, for the people listening who don't know who you are, Jeff, uh, Jeff's a fashion designer, graphic designer, many other kinds of designer. Um, Jeff, you've worked and collaborated with all sorts of brands. You've designed sneakers, apparel, um, and Jeff's been a fixture in the streetwear world for 20 plus years. Uh, He's also the host of Business of Hype. That's a radio show or podcast? Podcast. Okay, cool. On hypebeast.com, it's described as a radio show, so I didn't know if there was a difference there. Uh, but yeah, Jeff, can you, uh, if there's anything that I missed, can you no, just tell us? No, that was perfect. Thank okay. you. Thank okay, you cool. for that great introduction. Great, great, great. Um, why don't you quickly, before we jump into the conversation, can you tell me a bit of your path into the fashion world? Because I know you have kind of a fun story about how you sold the first uh, collection. Yeah. Um, I mean, my, my entry into the fashion world was I was attending Parsons School of Design, Uh, I was a communication design major, which is a fancy word for graphic design. Mm. Um, And I wasn't really trying to be a a full-fledged fashion designer because if you did, you would take fashion design as your major, and I wasn't trying to do that. Um, I really just saw an opportunity where if you wanted to convey a message as a graphic designer, you could do it on paper, which is traditionally how it would be be done. I saw a very powerful medium in the T-shirt, where if I could put a message on a T-shirt, give the 100 t-shirts out to my friends when they wear it on the subway, the train, the buses, my message is getting out there a lot faster than if I just hung a poster in someone's room, right? Right. Um, So that was really my foray into fashion. Um, And I was really using uh, the t-shirt as my medium for my expression. I wasn't trying to form a business or create Mm -hmm. a brand. It just so happened that I I wore one of my t-shirts into a store on Lafayette Street in, in Soho, and the manager said like, hey, that's a cool shirt, and you know, if you want, we'll sell it here. And I was like, oh, cool, I made this shirt. And he's like, wow, that's awesome, so make more. And I was making these at Parsons, like in their silkscreen lab. Um, and What was on the shirt? It remember? was, yeah, it was, uh, I made three shirts actually, and they were sort of like imagery that recounted uh, instances in history that I don't think we should ever forget. Um, so the one I was wearing happened to be uh, a silkscreen of the Tiananmen Square student mm-hmm. uprising in China with like that man sort of standing in front of the line of tanks. Right. And so that was the shirt. That was the first shirt. And it was a hard shirt to print um, because there was like sort of registration and like, you know, I was trying to hand print them. And Parsons didn't allow you to print on T-shirts in their silkscreen lab. They only allowed you to print on paper. So me and a friend would have to break into school at night after hours to print there. <laughs> yeah, for some yeah. illicit printing. Yeah, it was total sweatshop after hour <laughs> printing, you know, but it was so fun. It was fun as hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was only doing it out of love until that guy said, I'll buy 12 shirts. That 12 right. shirt order was my first quote unquote like purchase order, my mm-hmm. PO. 
Um, and then those sold out really fast. And then another store called Union uh, that was now in L.A., but they were in New York. They bought 12. And then, you know, the other the first store bought 24 and it just kept ping ponging. And that sort of was the start of my business. Mm-hmm. But, and you've been in it ever since. Yeah, I've been. I mean, it, incredibly, like coming from someone who didn't want to start a fashion brand in that was 1997. Mm-hmm. OK, since 97, I have not skipped a season of delivery since like in the past 22 years. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Impressive yeah. stuff. Um, so I wanted to jump into kind of have two topics that I want to talk about. The first mm-hmm. one is going to be about collaborations. Okay. And the second is about kind of looking forward, since this is the last episode, looking forward at uh, what's in store for streetwear. Mm-hmm. So uh, on the first topic, you've done a ton of collaborations. You've worked with, obviously Nike is a very famous one, but you've worked with Fila and Puma, yeah. Doc Martens. Mm-hmm. Um, in your estimation, why do you think collaborations have become such a central part of streetwear? Um, well, I think collaborations in general have become a central part of society, really. Mm. Um, streetwear in particular, because I think there is inherently a lot of limitations that happen from streetwear creators, right? Like brands that start out in streetwear, they oftentimes can only do um a through G really well, and the rest of it they can't figure out because of limited resources, limited you know funds, limited expertise. So they need somebody else to come in. So if you have a really cool T-shirt brand, for example, for you to make a shoe that's really hard, right? Like to open the molds, go to China, get you know something sourced. But if now a sneaker brand just comes and says, "We'll make a shoe with you," well, that's really awesome. And now the win-win situation is T-shirt brand who could have never made a shoe can now make a shoe. The shoe brand who needs some sort of like energy and some sort of connection to a demographic that they're not currently reaching that the T-shirt brand has in their left pocket. Right. Like they get that access to that audience now. So it's a it's a nice yin yang win win situation. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's inherently more so happening in street culture because of of that sort of shortage in in funds or access that happens. Mm-hmm. So it comes from the kind of like underground collaborative uh subculture kind of atmosphere? Yeah, I think so. I think it inherently comes from that. But of course now, like, you know, I just saw like Dunkin' Donuts did a collaboration with a right. sneaker, you know? Right. And it's just like everyone can do a collaboration now. And at this point, it's become like a marketing sort of talk point. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I Do you think there's any, do you draw a distinction between collaborations that are like something like um, Virgil and Nike mm-hmm. as opposed to like that, as opposed to like Bape did a collaboration with like, Wreck-It Ralph, which mm-hmm. to me seems like less of a collaboration and more just like merchandising kind of. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's a there's a distinction in my mind between a collab and a licensing deal. Right. Right. And that's a licensing deal. There's a lot of licensing deals out there that mm-hmm. are calling themselves collaborations. And I don't really think that's fair to people who do collaborations because there is a lot of... Um, work and backstory and energy that goes into collabs you know Mm -hmm. like when i'm doing a collab with doc martens you know i'm not just taking the doc martens logo and slapping it on and paying them a royalty like i'm up at 3 a.m whatsapping with the design director in london about doc martens Mm -hmm. you know like there's actual work whereas when it's just a logo slap i think younger people who don't know the the nuances and the differences are like oh yeah they did a collaboration with Garfield. Cool. It's like, you know, it's like, no, (laughs) that's not a, they just took logos, you know, Mm -hmm. that's it. Um, So yeah, I I really want people to understand the difference between like licensing and collaboration. Yeah. There's definitely a distinction there. Although I was at um, 
hype fest a few months ago mm-hmm. when uh, there was the Fragment and Pokemon collaboration, yes. which I honestly thought seemed really cool. It did. And and maybe that's something that's kind of in the murky middle between. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think for sure, like we just did a collaboration right now with Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. right? And that is inherently at its base from a contractual standpoint. It's a licensing deal. Like right. We pay Coca-Cola. Like technically it's licensing. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we are taking their assets and their IP and really like maxing it maxing it out to the to the potential that their lawyers say no <laughs> and like we're always in conversation yeah. with the lawyers like are you sure we should be doing that? I was like yeah it's really cool they're like okay we've never done that before <laughs> yeah. and you know I think with Fragment Pokemon it was the same thing like they mm-hmm. did stuff that no one who licensed Pokemon ever did you know mm-hmm. so it starts out as a licensing deal and I think it's structured like one mm-hmm. but because there's a creative involved it can be taken much further yeah definitely yeah. and I think you make a good point about the um accessing different demographics or different Mm -hmm. audiences um and i think in my opinion that seems like a a big driving factor in a lot of collaborations between streetwear brands and non-streetwear brands you know like that's why uh versace and kith Mm -hmm. like do a collaboration because versace has an audience that does not shop at kith and vice versa yes yeah do you agree with that yes i actually just had breakfast this morning with Ronnie. Yeah, we had a, we had a nice breakfast this morning. We talked about the Versace collaboration mm-hmm. and the making of it. And, and an interesting point that we talked about is, you know, I I, I praised him on what he did, and I mm-hmm. said how amazing that was. And I said it's it's almost unfortunate because like if you had done that eight years ago, like people would be making documentaries about this Versace kid collaboration. Yeah. But today, it's like great, Ronnie. What's next? What's yeah, coming out yeah. next week? Yeah, like, it's still what? Cool, I just but... did a freaking collaboration with Gianni Versace. Like, <laughs> had Bella Hadid as the model, mm-hmm. and you're asking me what's coming next week. Yeah. And like, unfortunately for him, he does have to come out with something next right, week. You know, right. like so it's like never ending cycle of chasing. It's almost like we've we've uh, trained these consumers to like come up with the, like the next what is the next collab that's coming out. You know, mm-hmm. um, and it's tough. It's tough to keep up with the with the Joneses like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and then he did come up with something next because there was the Estee Lauder <laughs> collaboration oh, yeah, too. Oh yeah, and he's like, opening uh, a store next week in London, and then a store after that. Like yeah, it's so crazy. I mean, yeah. he seems to be keeping up with it. Yeah. So, on that topic, mm-hmm. do you think that there is a danger of collaboration saturation or oversaturation? Yeah, I, I do. I think it's already happening. I think mm-hmm. there's um, there's a there's a desire for companies to keep doing collaborations, and just law of averages, right? Just you just take mathematically speaking, if you're doing 52 collaborations, one a week. They're not all going to be home runs. You're right. going to have a couple of duds, right? Yeah. So what happens is what do those duds do to your brand now? Like when you start coming out with two or three like back-to-back-to-back collaborations that are like, that made no sense, no one cared, and now it's on sale, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's going to happen after a while. Yeah. Um, not everyone can come out with like every single collaboration is like a home run, mm-hmm. you know? So what is that doing? It's actually now negatively affecting your brand versus what you wanted it to do, which was like add benefit to your brand, you know? So I think um, that is happening now where there's like just too much, it's oversaturation. And for the most part, a lot of them are pretty whack. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I like you mentioned earlier with the logo slap, I feel like there are some brands and I can't think of any off the top of I the head. I can think of one. <laughs> I just saw it yesterday. Who was it? I was walking around a meatpacking. Mm-hmm. DKNY X Major League Baseball. Oh, what did it look you, like? It, you know what it looked like? Mm. DKNY letters X the Major League Baseball logo, <laughs> and it's just like what? Why? That's it. Yeah. Who, da, what? 
Yeah. Does anyone in Major League Baseball give an F about Donna Karen? Does no. Donna Karen has she seen a baseball game? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, or even like anyone that's worked. I know Donna Karen's not really Donna Karen, but like the mm. the impression is just like that was so weird. Right. And and speaking of Major League Baseball, I saw one the other day, not necessarily streetwear, but do you know Untuck It? They make like their oh, yeah, shirts. My favorite you, brand. Yeah. <laughs> they did like a, a like <laughs> a collab with uh, MLB. But it's just like the normal like white shirt, and at the very bottom of like the button placket or whatever, yeah. there's like a tiny triangle with a team logo. Uh huh. And you could get an identical white shirt with like the Cardinals logo or something. Right, right. But that's like so small, it might as well not even exist. <sighs> I know. You know. So it's, like. And you know what? I I want to say, I have no beef, and I have no issue with the MLB or DKNY. Right. My beef is like, if you're gonna do something, tell the story of why this is happening. Yeah. Maybe yeah. there is some deep story. But your two logos with an X in the middle is not conveying the message to right. people. That's all I'm saying. And and I feel like you can either go for something that fits really well, mm-hmm. like two like two brands or a brand and a designer or something that like are made for each other. Yeah. Or you can go for something really out of the box and wacky in a fun way. Mm-hmm. But then you can also just have two things that just are, looks like uh, Mad Libs. Like you just put two random exactly. things together. It's a lot of Mad Libbing going on yeah. right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. <laughs> so assuming that there's a collaboration happening and assuming that it's a good fit mm-hmm. uh, and it's not just done for uh, you know for attention and it's not thrown together, yeah. assuming all of that, what do you think makes a good and effective collaboration? Like aside from just picking the right partner. Yeah, yeah. Um... Okay, I'd I'd like to think every collaboration that I've done has been good. So I'll mm-hmm. tell you, I can't necessarily tell you what makes every collaboration good, but I could tell you what I try to do in a collaboration. Um, I really try to put myself into the shoes of the person sitting on the other side of that collaboration table, right? So like when when we start a discussion about collaboration, I think um, a lot of people might be like, "Well, I just want A, B, C, and D," and that's everything that I want. And they don't think like, well, what's in it for you? Like, what do you want out of this? And that's actually my first question. My first question is like, what does the other side want out of this? And then what do I want out of it? And then let's see how many of those things actually meet up. Mm -hmm. That's how I see it. And I think the other thing is like a good collaboration starts at the product development level. Right. Right. So it's like, I want to talk to the product developer, the designer, or the creative director, or the head of innovation. I have to say, this will piss a lot of people off. Poor collaborations happen when they start with the sales and marketing team. Mm. And often That doesn't piss me off. That sounds very correct. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say like 90% of collaborations today start at marketing and sales. Right. And How fun would it be to throw these yeah, two names together? Yeah, yeah. And, and, oh, yeah. And I, I could get uh, Urban Outfitters to place a 2,000-piece order on it. So like sales <laughs> yeah. is happy. Mm-hmm. And then the la- and, and then, then afterthought, okay, well, now let's design the shoe. Right, let's design this. And th- and then they throw it on the designer's table and they're like, wait, what? who are we collaborating? Yeah. Why? <laughs> like, just do it. We already got the PO. Yeah. Like, sh- <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, definitely. You know, and I feel like kids now, you know, when I say kids, I mean the consumers of streetwear. Like mm-hmm. their their nose is so finely tuned now because they've seen so many yeah. of it that they just sniff it and they're just like, yeah, this was built in a boardroom. Right. Like right. there was not actually two designers sitting together for this. You know, yeah. and that's what they want. Um, and so with all the collaborations I do, I make sure like that I really try to sit down with each one, mm-hmm. which is why, quite honestly, I can't like pump out as many. Mm-hmm. Because I have to like sit down with each right, and every it takes person. Work. If you were yeah. just tossing them together, you could probably pump out a lot. A lot, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we really, honestly, only do like at most six a year. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like one every other month. Whereas, like, there's brands that just do it like on a weekly basis. Actually, yeah. multiple times a week, even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you um, 
Could you point to a specific one that you've done and like what were some, like you mentioned, what am I getting out of it? What are they getting out of it? And like, can you tell me what a, a collaboration that you did in which you could kind of point to what those things were? Um, yeah, I think there's a lot. The first one that happens mm-hmm. to spring to mind is Kohan. We recently just did a, a collaboration with Kohan and we're actually working on more stuff together. Um, and Kohan's in a really interesting place because they're all about like, they're like the new workwear, right? Like the the new nine to fiver, the new sort of entrepreneur. Um, and they're not trying to tread on Nike or Adidas and try to make a sports brand. But there is something inherently happening where like, you know, people can wear yoga pants to work. People can wear sneakers to a meeting now. You don't have yeah. to wear a suit and tie. So there's something, you know, everyone knows the term athleisure. There's something like um, sort of like democratizing of like fashion in the workplace. And I feel like Cole Haan, back in the day when they started making like brogues and wingtips more comfortable, they were sort of on that. Now, because it's sort of almost lapped them where like you could just straight up wear gym shoes to a meeting now, mm-hmm. right? So you don't even really need more comfortable wingtips because you could just wear straight up sneakers. I feel like Cole Haan's in a position where they can take back that mentality of like, no, we were here first. Um, we were the first one to sort of casualize the workplace. And if we worked with someone who is already in the sneaker world and then bring their DNA into what we're trying to do, we could actually make improvement with our brand. You right. Know? Um, so that's what we're trying to do with Cole Haan. And it's it's really great work with them because they have an innovation team in New Hampshire. And it's like they're actual like nerdy scientists working on like really great shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just trying to make it sort of more relevant to the new worker who is not going to an office nine to five. He's probably going to a WeWork. He's probably on Slack on his phone. He probably doesn't even have a boss. He probably has like six bosses. You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. And that's the entrepreneur that we're trying to mm-hmm. go after. And that's a good example of, of what you're saying, like starting with the product. Because like, y- like Kohan has their actual designers, their people in the in the lab yep. working on this. It's not just like the sales team. No. You know. In fact, I, w- I haven't talked to a salesperson at Cole right. on yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, I uh, I have a sort of transi- transitionary question. Here. Okay. Um, this is something that I know you have strong opinions on because I saw you post about it on Instagram. Uh, the American Eagle sneaker resale mm-hmm. pop-up yeah. investment partnership, whatever yes. you want to call it, okay. uh, with Urban Necessities. Um, when I saw that, mm-hmm. it kind of, I'm, I'm like sort of in touch with like what's sort of going on in this world and I had no clue that that was happening really caught me off guard what, what were your thoughts on well let me well, explain caught you off guard imagine if you yeah. saw your logo in the window <laughs> right right because <laughs> some of your shoes were being sold there right? yes yeah. so just uh, t- for the listeners real quick um uh, a couple of weeks ago, American Eagle announced that they were opening a pop-up sneaker resale shop operated by Urban Necessities, which is a LA, Vegas, I think. Or, oh yeah, Vegas-based yeah. um, sneaker reseller mm-hmm. that they had invested in, partially acquired. Uh, but anyway, Jeff, you had some Correct. strong thoughts. Yeah. So you know, and in doing that, to continue your explanation, which was great. Um, now, if you go to the Soho flagship American Eagle, they have the pop-up of the sneaker store in the back. And in the mm. front window display on Broadway in Houston, they have the shoes of Nike, Kanye West, DJ Khaled, my shoes, like Virgil Abloh's, all in the window display. American Eagle doesn't have a Nike account. They don't have an Adidas right. account. So they're not an authorized seller of this, right? And American Eagle is not flight club or like your local consignment shop where you can go in and shake the guy's hand. It's a publicly traded $4 billion company. Right. On the side on Houston Street where they have their billboards, they have Concepts Lobster. They have DJ Khaled's logo. They have Travis Scott with an American Eagle logo under it. Mm-hmm. So there is 
to me, in my opinion, there is some level of deception happening where they're saying like, we have this kids, we know you want it. Now walk through our store where you have to walk through our jeans and t-shirts business mm. in order to get to the carrot at the end of the rainbow that right. you want, right? And so my beef is not with reselling. I'm mm. all for the the concept of reselling. Yep. I understand that's reality. My beef is not with um, urban necessities. As an entrepreneur, if he wants to get his deal done with American Eagle, I'm all for Honestly, I'm all for selling out. Like, if yeah. you build a business and you can cash <laughs> do out, it. Yeah. do it. Yeah, I'm so proud of him. In fact, I'm getting him on an episode of my podcast to, like, hash yeah. this out. Yeah, yeah. My my problem is American Eagle falsifying their claims that, like, we carry these brands that you see in our ads and on our windows, you know? Mm-hmm. And some people don't really realize, the, the comments on my feed were very, very polarizing. But I'll, I'll put it another way that maybe is more clear, and it's the same exact thing. Foot Locker recently made a significant investment into Goat, which yeah. is one of the top three largest mm-hmm. resale companies. $100 million investment, big, right? Goat On Goat, you can buy Gucci, Balenciaga, Fendi shoes. Foot Locker, while they might want a Balenciaga account, they're never getting a Balenciaga right. account, correct? Balenciaga will never sell at Foot Locker. Correct. But now that Foot Locker bought Goat, Foot Locker might one day put a Balenciaga shoe in their window display and be like, mm. wait, no, we we own Goat. If they get like a Goat pop-up or something inside, exactly. like they could say you could come to a Foot Locker, Foot Locker store and buy a Balenciaga. Yes. How will Balenciaga feel about that? Right. They have 20 people probably in place that are all controlling distribution points. Mm. And here's someone coming in and breaking you know, the <laughs> Completely rules. Completely throwing a stick of dynamite into that. Yeah, <laughs> but like, you know what? Right now, I think these new rules have to be written because mm. reselling is such a new aspect that like there's not a law or a rule that covers this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There is a law that says if you bought this at retail, you could do whatever you want with it. Mm. So that's what reselling is. That's why reselling can get away with everything. Mm. But laws are gonna have to be written pretty Yeah, because now they're using it for advertising and, and, totally. you know, and, and this whole other Yeah, they're pulling the wool over people's eyes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um so the reason I ask is because I wanted to get your thoughts on like, do you think that streetwear and mm-hmm. and from here we can get into more like the definition of what you think streetwear means and and where you think it's going do you think that streetwear is kind of being preyed upon by mm-hmm. sort of like more mainstream fashion society is like they're realizing how popular it is and kind of just like latching on you know no i see it as actually the opposite i see really? streetwear as like a parasite that is infecting all <laughs> aspects of society yeah yeah and I, I i've said this for well over five years now that i think if you look at past subcultures of society like hip-hop culture skate culture mm. punk culture right like these sort of like um, isms that existed yeah. and they, they each sort of had their falling out right like skate had their day then they fell out punk had their day then they fell out hip hop had its day musically it's still there but from a fashion standpoint it sort of fell out what street culture is doing is it's melding all of these things in the one big melting pot and the beautiful thing about street culture is that now f- high fashion couture fashion is falling into the, the trappings of that melting pot yeah. and it's getting infected and when I say that it's like you know, we have people like, you know, Pharrell and Chanel and Virgil and Louis Vuitton. Like, we are getting in their systems. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, and they're buying, if anything, they're buying into us. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think in the future, in the near future, street culture will have just infected all aspects of It'll be bigger than any of those things that I mentioned before. Yeah. And it'll be to the point where there's not even a differentiation between, like, high fashion and street culture anymore. Right. You know, and if everything goes right, if the youth continue to do what they should be doing, which is anti-establishment, 
the youth should be able to build something that will be anti-street culture and mm-hmm. that'll be like the new cool thing and right. I don't know the name of it because I'm old and I should know the name of it. But <laughs> right. some some young 11-year-old right now thinks, and I'm not disrespecting Virgil, mm-hmm. but some 11-year-old thinks the Virgil-Louis thing is corny as hell. Right. Right? Because- But that's good. That's the natural evolution. Yeah. yeah. And there, you know what? Like from I came from the Jay-Z era, right? I mm-hmm. bow down to Jay-Z. But there's like a 20-year-old that thinks Jay-Z's corny because he bought yeah. into the Brooklyn Nets. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's corny. He's like entrepreneur. He's, no, he's like, no, he's, he's corny. Yeah. yeah. No, but so like same thing. Like there's mm-hmm. a kid who's just like angry at that stuff. Yeah, and they think it's stupid. And to be fair, Virgil probably thought whoever was like, whoever was the Virgil to him as a kid, he probably thought they were stupid as hell too. Yeah, so it, like, it's just, just natural progression. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So some kid's going to build the anti-street culture thing and he's going to yeah. call it something else. And some some 11-year-old kid in like 10 years or like five years even is going to start wearing like pinstripe Gordon Gecko suits everywhere <laughs> and then that's going to be the new Love thing. It. Yeah, he'll wear the, he'll bring back the shoulder pads. Yeah, and like just the enormous suit. shoulder, yeah, zoot suits. Um, I can see that. I yeah, can, I can see um, it too. But yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like, from all the people that I've talked to in the streetwear world, a lot of them have very strong feelings that streetwear as a as a term is like not necessarily useless, but just becoming very vague. It's it's very watered you know, down. Yeah. yeah it, like it could be anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you know what? Like, I'll give you an example. Like I travel a lot, right? And I sit mm. on a lot of airplanes and a lot of airports. And one thing I've noticed more and more now is that like everyone on the airplane, which is a good sort of democratization of just people in general- like everyone on the airplane is wearing Yeezys and off whites now, and they all have a Supreme Ramoa bag. Yeah. Like, I feel like seventy percent of the airplane has it now. Yeah. And it's like, I'm like, wow, the guy who's wearing just white Chuck Taylors is all of a sudden the individual unique guy now. Mm-hmm. So it's like the guy who's not playing into street culture, which is supposed to be about uniqueness and individuality. Mm-hmm. The guy who's not playing into that is the individual guy. Yeah. You know? So it's kind of on its its ass backwards right now. Yeah. And I think we're going to get to a point where it's like, oh, and I hate saying this because these are like my friends, but it's like, it's going to get to the point where if you're wearing like Yeezys and Off-Whites, you're like the corny guy now. And I, yeah. it hurts me to say that. It really does because I love those brands and I love those shoes. I have Off-Whites. Mm-hmm. I can't wear it anymore because I don't want to be quote unquote I'm using air quotes as a podcast <laughs> I, I can't be that guy right you know like I have to be wearing something different because I'm someone who likes to be an individual you mm-hmm. know and it's just gotten to that point yeah where it's like what does street culture mean now you know if you're into it right yeah um, are there any elements of what you might call streetwear that exists today that you think will sort of like hold on you know in perpetuity are there like are there any elements of streetwear that you don't think are going away yes Bootlegging. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I think bootlegging is an amazing thing. Like counterfeiting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But do you know the brand Chinatown Market? Yes. Yeah, they were like taking a bunch of logos from yeah. like Canal Street ramen restaurants. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're amazing. Uh, and, you know, shout out Mike Sherman, who's the, who's the founder of it. But like this whole idea of bootleg culture is really cool. You know, like, I mean, even like Gucci used to sue you know, Dapper Dan for bootlegging stuff, and mm-hmm. now they're collaborating. Now they work with them. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. LV used to sue Supreme for bootlegging them, and now they did a collaboration. You know, right. so it's almost like nowadays, if you, if I were to give advice to a young person about starting a brand, I'd be like, who do you want to collaborate with? Just fucking do it. Yeah, <laughs> like just just bootleg them. Yeah, and they're because of social media, they're gonna see it, right? They're gonna see it overnight. And then they're either going to sue you and send you a cease and desist, which is meaningless, just stop doing it, or they're going to call you and send you a work contract. 
So 50-50 there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think, no, it, the bootleg culture is cool because I think it really just shows. I mean, it came from like even back in the day with like rave culture. They were mm-hmm. already like bootlegging logos and stuff, you know. Um, and I just think that's one of those things that like will never go away, you know. And yeah. it's, it's how, if you're a young, going back to that 11-year-old that's really angry, mm-hmm. like, you know, he hasn't gone to design school yet. He can't cut a pattern yet. He doesn't know Illustrator yet. All he can do is probably photocopy his best and favorite logo, whether it's a band album cover or, or brand logo and add his 10% to it and then remix it, that's essentially what bootlegging is. And that's how it all starts for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know of anyone in like the, who's like prominent in the fashion world now who started that way? Yeah. I mean, Vetmont started that way, mm-hmm. right? He was a bootlegger. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He, he bootlegged champion logos before like he was allowed to, mm-hmm. you know, he turned the champion C sideways and then turned it into a V and wrote Vetmont. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so yeah. like he's probably one of the most, you know, successful ones mm-hmm. that that got up there. Um this is kind of a tangent, but have you seen that company that's like Supreme Europe or mm-hmm. something Supreme and they're Italia. It's Supreme Italia, yeah. yeah. Who are from Spain, I think. Yeah, they well they the same company owns Supreme Spain and Supreme Italia. Oh, okay. It's, very, in, it's a very interesting case. But they're like not Supreme. They're, no, they're not Supreme, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> and you know what I think is crazier than that because Bootlegging and counterfeiting has always existed throughout time. What I think is actually the crazy thing is I got a push notification on my iPhone from CNN headline breaking news, which is supposed to be like, you know, a tornado hit. Yeah, or an assassination or something. It was Supreme countersues Supreme Italia for (laughs) their billion dollar valuation. Mm. I'm like, Supreme is getting headline news on yeah. CNN, like that to me is like where street culture has gone crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so you think that the rise of streetwear has kind of like opened up a lot of these brands, even even non streetwear brands like Louis Vuitton or something. Mm-hmm. They're just like more porous and kind of like open to the public than they were before. Yeah, and that's really the plus side. You know, yeah. like I last week I had BMW ask me to do a talk to see like what do young people think about BMWs. You know, and I, I'm able to speak honestly and freely about that, and they're like intently jotting into their notebooks like what I right. think. And then I, I sort of caught myself in a surreal moment. I was like, I can't believe BMW's listening to my <laughs> my opinions on their cars. You yeah. know? It's kind of a crazy world, but it's dope in that way. Mm. Are there any other... Yeah, I kind of just want to go back to that element that, or that uh, question, though, of are there any other elements of street culture or streetwear culture, like the drop or anything like that, like beyond the aesthetics of streetwear, but mm-hmm. more in like the fundamental sort of business practices or philosophical practices of streetwear that you think are going to stick around? Yeah. uh, One you mentioned is the drop for sure. I think um, in a couple of years within our lifetime, I think the idea of seasonal collections like, you know, spring, summer 22 or like resort 19, like these are all going away. Um, And those have been fragmenting for a while. Yeah, exactly. It's happening. uh, And I think the drops really just accelerated it. Um, also I think global warming is accelerating it. Like, <laughs> you know, like holiday yeah. doesn't mean anything anymore, right. you know? Um, so I think there's that. And then I think, uh, limited edition quantity productions is also a thing that is pervasive in almost every aspect now. Like even the McRib at McDonald's is yeah. limited edition now, you know what I yeah. mean? It's like, and it works. Like they pull it away. Everyone's like, we want the McRib back, you yeah. know? Like, so, uh, I think it works in every yeah, aspect. Managing hype is, is like really just seems like a key skill. Yes. For anyone in fashion today. Yeah. It's uh it's control. If you, if you imagine, um, your supplies as like a spigot on a faucet, mm-hmm. it's like managing how fast that flows yeah. and how tight that needs to get yeah. is like a huge you got, part and of you got to thread the needle. Cause if you're, if you're too tight with it, people are just like, all right, fuck you. Exactly. I don't, I don't it's meaningless. Exactly. Yeah. See some brands come out and be like, we're going to make one of something. 
It's like no, no, nobody wants nobody wants one. nobody wants the only thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they want one of a few. things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you have to make sure that the few things you're wearing is on aspirational people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I don't know if you heard this recently, but like Allbirds has recent Allbirds the shoe yeah, brand yeah. very successful has recently been going through some criticism because even though they're doing well financially, unfortunately. Some people think, not me. <laughs> some people think that the people who wear Allbirds are not an aspirational person. Okay, right? Yeah, it's, it's sort of like there's like a stigmatism against it, mm-hmm. you know, or stigma, stigma, a, a stigma. Not, not a stigmatism. A stig- That's in my eye. Stig- yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a stigma against it, you know. So it it can't just be like make a hundred and get it out there and sell it out and it's all good. It has to be make a hundred. 99 of them have to go on the right people. One mm. of them has to be on StockX, yeah. you know, going for like 10 times its value. Yeah. And then you've got a brand to build. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, all right, last question, or second to last question. So in the very first episode, we had Ryan Babenzine on. Uh, I mentioned to you before we started recording that he immediately shot down the idea that streetwear even existed, and he thought that streetwear <laughs> as a term just was like completely dead. Um do you agree? No, I don't agree at all. How could you okay. say that? All right, you explain. say that, Ryan. <laughs> well, to me, streetwear. I, 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 I know Ryan personally, mm-hmm. and I know like sort of the era that he comes from. We come from the same era, mm-hmm. so I, if, without putting words in his mouth, I would say that he's probably reminiscing on a day where there was like ten stores in the world that sold niche T-shirt brands, and the T-shirt brand was silk screening them in their bathroom, and like you know, you knew the owner and stuff. Yes, that day is gone because now. People don't start t-shirt brands for the love of expressing ideas like I did. People start t-shirt brands to go viral and become millionaires now. You know, so it's a whole different mentality. So that mentality of streetwear is gone for the most part. Um, but I think streetwear, I have a different definition of streetwear, mm-hmm. which is things that people wear on the street, <laughs> right? So like a radical definition <laughs> of the term. <laughs> Exactly. But that's why to me, even Dior can be streetwear. Yeah. You know, and like And it is frequently. It is, exactly. You know, and so there's it it makes sense when you see brands like Coach and Gucci. You look at a window display of Gucci and it's like you could be looking at the window display of Zoomies. Like you almost can't tell the difference. Like if someone wasn't into fashion and you were like, What's the difference between Gucci and Zoomies? They'd be like, It looks the same to me. (laughs) It's like now look at the price tags. They'd be like floored. You know what I mean? So to me, all of it is streetwear. If, if people can wear it in the streets, then it's streetwear. And so that is more so alive and kicking than ever before. Great. Sorry, Ryan. No, no, that's great. <laughs> um, Jeff, final question for you. Can you tell our listeners what shoes are you wearing right now? All right. I am right now wearing the Nike Air Max 2 by mm-hmm. a Japanese brand called Atmos. That just came out. Right, uh, it comes then? out in 10 days. Oh, it's not out at all <laughs> it's yet. It's not out yet. Yeah. It just uh, got announced? Like It just got announced, yeah. 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 And uh, they were nice enough to send me a pair, mm-hmm. and I appreciate that. It's one of the perks of being in the business. They're very colorful. Yes. <laughs> They're very spring-like. Cool. Yeah. Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Thank it's you guys, too. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. That's all for this edition of Glossy Trend Watch. A special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. We'll be back soon to take another deep dive into what's trending in the fashion industry. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe and review both the Glossy Podcast and the Glossy Beauty Podcast. To keep up with the latest news in fashion and beauty, follow us on social media at Glossy Co. Thank you for listening.